I thank my coaches of yesteryear as a freshman in what then was known as junior high, what we now today call simply high school, but I thank them. Coach Coke, he was Coke, Coach Coke, and Coach Dickinson. I thank them because they made a change in my life. Myself, at that particular time and in this particular sport, I was a wide receiver. I was like flypaper on Speedy Gonzales. Wasn't always that way, but there was a season in which the passes stuck and I found myself always to be in the precise place for the pass. And I believe our quarterback, so me, wide receiver, our quarterback, and a couple of linemen. Our coaches were very good about instructing us in the way that we should go. Primarily that was done on the field, but this was different, this was off the field. They had found out that off the field we had done something that disqualified us to be on the field. I have no idea how they found out. And I must say I was surprised about the manner by which they wanted to indelibly mark me for excellence. We were called into the locker room from the field after a hard scrimmage, we had removed our uniforms. That in and of itself is a process. But I realized it was an important process for these coaches. They wanted to disarm us. They wanted us to be brought to a place to receive a life-changing lesson. So as athletes, a wide receiver, a quarterback, a couple of linemen on a very winning team. Gentlemen, this is what we found out about what it was you did. Oops. <laughs> did we just take off our uniforms? We don't have shoulder pads. We don't have anything. We kind of knew what direction it was going. One of them dismissed himself briefly to go into his office to bring out a very long board that a shop teacher honed to perfection in making sure it was aerodynamic. They were precise holes of differing sizes. It had a perfect length that could probably cover the backside of a couple of guys simultaneously. But it was simply this, the charge was red and it was we, as a winning team combination, were asked to simply do this. Surrender your buns of steel. We are going to work on your brains of stupidity. Oh, man. Couldn't that be in a song and not necessarily in my life right now? 
And so we bent over, we grabbed the bench, and each one of us simultaneously took the whack that was intended to correct what we did off the field. For he wanted excellence on the field. So I thank them. They were actually great coaches, not simply because of how they shaped us as football players, but how they chose to keep us in shape for something beyond that character. They knew that this was a season. It was just a season. We had a bit of fame, but they were interested in the framework of our life. And so, what can you do? Part of it is that you surrender because it doesn't get any better if you don't. But I just found that to be on topic. And the important thing is not simply the discipline. Because the title here is saying God's correction is for a fresh direction. You see, if it's about condemnation and you'll never play again and how could you and wait till we take it up the chain of command a little bit farther, guys, it was over. And it was precisely over. And those coaches became, for us, on the field, inspiring, even as we were perspiring, even as we wish that that had not been something we incurred because of what occurred. So all of you have your own experiences, and we still do. And hopefully it's something that humors you more than depresses you. But it is a real-life story. Okay, but Rich, you've got us interested now. What did you do to deserve that? And I thought about it. And I thought, what does that matter? It was settled. It's over. It doesn't matter. That's one of the important things about understanding the corrective process of God. He's not hanging on to it. Why should I? We're in a time and season now in which hanging on to that stuff is the priority as opposed to just letting it go. Maybe I can't tell you because maybe there were so many infractions that I also didn't get caught on that I can't remember. I just remember the manner and means by which the direction of my life was altered. Buns of steel would be chastened in order that minds of stupidity would be humble. And I could do in life and on that field what was required of me. And when that took place, it sent a message to the rest of the team. Or it wasn't, guys, come on in here. We're all going to observe corrections so that you don't do it. How did they know? Well, because it was kind of an exclusive meeting. You don't pick like four guys out of a you know, team of probably 20 we had and think that they're going to be recipients of an Oscar, especially when there's a game coming and we had a challenge in the previous game. What I'm saying is that in that event, there was an honest and, I believe, loving manner by which we had an altogether different outlook about what was expected of us 
off the field, that we might be admired on the field. That's what I remember. The, the reason for it, thank the Lord, that I think much like him, I do not remember. But I also say this with regard to the fact I have not forgotten that something went askew and that someone addressed it actually two guys and that it did make a difference in choices that I would make. Not perfectly, it did make a difference. But I do want to emphasize again, it's not about what I did. It's not about what the quarterback did. It's not about what the two linemen did. It's the fact that it was settled. We learned our lesson and we went on to be men. We all did take different directives, meaning that some heard this to go there, some heard in their heart this to go there, and we did, very uniquely. Of those four, I know that one is no longer alive. And that was what I have heard was a result of a choice that was made. That was our quarterback. The choices that he made from that incident did not necessarily play out to be what was best for him. The others I don't know, a lot of time. But if I can, we're going to move through this, but we also need to set it up with regard to what we are equally informed in the book of Hebrews, turn to the 12th chapter. Let's take a peek for our encouragement. It is for our encouragement. Uh, this always discourages me. Well, change your mind. Change your mind. That's not its intent at all. For consider verse 3, chapter 12, Hebrews, him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. As this is written, it is to cause us to think not about ourselves, but of one who unnecessarily, meaning this, didn't deserve it, took an affliction by those who indeed were viciously harming him. This is Jesus being spoken of. When I cited what happened to me, I can say I deserved it. The scriptures cite Jesus and says clearly he did not. As a result of that, I am to put my focus on him to understand how much his devoted life in love was for you and me. And in particular, in the times in which this says, I may be weary and discouraged in my soul. And that happens when the emphasis is on me rather than the reflection upon Jesus and the sure hope that he is presently in whatever situation I'm in or whatever situation anybody else is in. I got a fairly lengthy text last night from somebody who was crying out in discouragement. 
And I simply could not do anything other than to give a simple passage of Scripture in the words of Jesus, and I chose to allow that to be sufficient for what was needed. Still will, still do. He's the author of words that are intended to take the weary person and strengthen them into wellness. And so as this continues, it moves us into an understanding as well that I need to be reminded of. You have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. Whatever that event was, I know this, we did not resist. On the field, oh, we gave our skin and what we would say, the blood of our wounds that happen when young football players smack into each other and parts of helmets take parts of your skin, cleats as well penetrate parts of your skin. We always had scars. There was always bleeding on the field. But this says, according to this emphasis, in the resisting against sin, not so, haven't done so. Have you forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons? Remember this. This is actually a compliment. Your sons, your daughters. And the exhortation is a word that's intended to bring again a change, but that which is encouraging, much like a coach. Would have preferred to have, oh, at that particular time with the four of us gathered there and the two coaches been offered a Coca-Cola on ice. How high you guys want it? Can we have the 16-ouncer, coach? That's just awesome. That wasn't the purpose of meeting with the coach. It was to get 16 inches of wood on the backside. The Coke would have to come later with ice, probably not for our mouth, but to cool the burn on the backside. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. This is an admonition. We are not to be discouraged when we are rebuked by him, much like a coach. That's why I thanked Coach Coke and Dickinson, because they were faithful in their charge to raise up members individually who formed a team that needed to work together to have the same mindset, to have the same heart, to have the same goal, which was to win. Don't be discouraged. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens. Chastening is, from the perspective of God, from his word, a demonstration of his love for us. I cited some things personally a couple of weeks ago. I just took a different perspective inciting something that most men here can relate to the old locker room. But the chastening is a demonstration of love and scourges every son whom he receives. This is the disciplining hand of the Lord. The scourging implies exactly what it suggests. It's a spanking. 
Though not appreciated by the recipient, it is required by the administrator. And we've all been in both of those positions as well. Just because your scourging may have been tough on you does not necessarily dismiss the fact that you need to be one who steps into the role of an administrator that can minister that. And especially when we talk about with children. If you endure chastening, verse 7, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate, not sons. The legitimacy of a son and daughter is by the demonstration of God's love. That his desire is to do what? Correct us for a fresh direction. God's correction is for a fresh direction. It doesn't necessarily imply a new direction. It's a fresh direction. There's only one way in faith. That's God's way. So why do I have to be worried about a bunch of directions if God says that he is wanting me simply to have a fresh direction, a fresh start, a new beginning. Every single person here ought to be able to say, I had a new beginning. I had a fresh start. I had a good work. It happened after a bad work, after a miserable failure. But God just did what the Word declares He does. He gets over what got him to correct me. And I've learned that I need to get over it as well. That I might be in that way an example of being a recipient of a change in my life to turn me into a better man for the rest of my life. We've all got your own personal illustrations but without chastening, the word declares that it's illegitimate. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the father of spirits and live? It's true that that's not necessarily something that all have done or presently do. It's something that they should because the scriptures tell us to honor our mother and father that it might go well for you in the land that the in the land that the Lord is bringing us into. That's an admonition for children. And it's a promise to children that it might go well. So what we need to be doing is having this generation of youth taught and trained lovingly, understanding the heart of God to administrate and to get over it and to set them straight on course again. For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but he for our profit that we may be partakers of his holiness. No chastening, it says, now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful nevertheless afterward it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. It's a training session. David in this section of scripture is both being corrected, but he's being trained though he is in what you would call beyond the midpoint of his life with about 20 years left of his life, and though it will be hard, the training is necessary now 
so that he is able to be as strong as he can be for yet the work that God is going to do through him and ultimately one who will succeed him, a son, a son not yet even on the scene, not from God's perspective. Oh, there is a child on the scene, but it's not the child right now that the Lord has marked for David's inheritance and for ultimately the lineage by whom the promise to David would extend ultimately to the day in which God himself, Jesus, would be born and given to the world. That God so loves the only begotten Son. Back to Second Samuel. Nathan in verse 15 in chapter 12, had departed after giving the word of truth to David. Remember, the encouragement was simply this. The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. In the correction that Nathan gave, David was able to hear The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. That would have been, and still is today, a comfort. For the wages of sin is death, the scriptures say, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You're not going to die. Oh, for the past nine months to a year, you have felt like dying for what it is that you did do, but you're not going to die. Nevertheless, Nathan would say, there is correction that will take place. And we looked at a scripture that gave us, again, encouragement so that God isn't the one to blame, both in Isaiah but in Jeremiah. The scriptures tell us that the backslider is corrected by his sin. I think he said God corrects. Well, there's a difference, though. In other words, God has made into his economy of living a provision by which sin has its payback, and that's so that we choose wisely who we are going to invest in. That's as simple. You learn basically how to shop by basically what you come away with. Wow, that was a great, that was a great investment. There's a, there is a, there's a car lot that I still, as I go by it, I hiss at. Because oh, they sold me a car that I had to name Ishmael. It was a donkey of a car. And I'm not saying I didn't deserve it, because I actually did deserve it. I didn't ask God if I should buy it. And everything about it with a new baby on the way seemed like, this is great. We can store the diapers here, and it's going to be good on economy. It kicked me in the teeth from the day that I bought it. Dodge Colt Vista. Oof. If I had had Bruno at that time with us, he would have made my life easier. But David right now 
at this time has heard the word of the Lord. And the Lord says simply that because you've given opportunity for the enemy of God to blaspheme him, the child also who is born to you shall surely die. And some have a difficult time understanding this and perhaps blaming God for such a sentence. But remember, there are things right now measured out for David for what is the crime that he committed. He committed murder and adultery. And the means by which the backslider was corrected was reciprocated to the degree of the sin. It's a principle. Praise God that much of what our Old Testament saints needed to go through to teach us principles of living, God has been gracious in what we call the grace and mercy of God beyond the law. The law required severity. But as Jesus came into the portal of humanity to deliver us extravagantly, we live truly as criminals that have been saved from a very harsh and brutal judgment by God because we are found in his Son. And therefore, in the times in which sin may be evident to us, and in which we are able to say, yep, that was me, yep, I did it, ooh, I hope nobody finds out about it, God dismisses it based on the blood that was shed and on the person by whom we have our relationship with. It doesn't mean that there isn't a correction, but you must understand it is for the purpose of a fresh direction, a new wave of mercy. David believed in this even though hearing a word that was strong against what would be a heartbreaking moment to Bathsheba, but she's not even recognized in this right now. God's talking to David. I need to be real careful about making sure you understand this isn't about babies. Because David's going to say something in here that not only is hopeful, it's true. The correction is happening to David based on the crime that he committed. And the child that you perhaps now have a sentiment towards is going to be with the Lord. What we understand also in this is that there well may have been a reason that this child, whom seems to be a part of the spanking or correction to David, is also going to be spared of a very difficult life because when it would be found out and known among his enemies, that young boy who would grow to be a prince would be a severely challenged young man among his brothers and sisters presently born. And God may have said, I will spare this child of that kind of life. We say how ruthless that the Lord would take such life. He's the author of life. We don't need to be worried about what God has done with the life of the innocent because the bottom line is, if you want to get concerned, you weren't picked. I wasn't picked. The day that the Lord picked them from this temporal realm to transfer them into the eternal home, that shows me 
who made it to the first team first. I'm still a bench warmer. I have to be reminded of that. That though my sorrow may be in the loss of those whom I love, and even documenting the innocent, and by the way, we have many innocent who are by no means being judged by God, but are being judged by men ruthlessly, lawlessly, in my opinion, contrary to scripture, through abortion. We have to understand, though that is what men are doing to them, God is saying, I'm taking you out. I'm going to take what has been an interruption of your life and you enter into life with me. It's a hope. David right now, though it says in verse 16, pleaded with God for the child and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. What is David doing if he understands that he's heard the word of the Lord and he can't alter it? This is David now reconnecting by the consequence with God. He has already made up for it. The Psalms declares that he was touched radically enough to pen them. But what he's doing is he's coming back to basics. He's on his face, prostrated before the Lord, and actually not knowing whether or not the Lord would show a change of course or mercy. He's humbling himself to say, it's worth a shot. If nothing comes of this, I know this, the Lord will realize that I'm back in the place of where I always should have been on my face. Not with my face looking at those things that distracted me, that tempted me, but I'm on my face in the manner by which I'm reconnecting with God. He's citing himself as an example in Scripture. Fasting was a way in which the soul was humbled. You try fasting and see how quickly you will feel humbled as your belly growls, as there's weakness that moves throughout your body, as your body resents the discipline of the fast upon you. It's interesting. But the Lord does do beautiful changes within you. That is certain and powerful things as a result. David is actually being made in his time of weakness stronger in his spirituality, and he'll need it for the next 20 years of what will happen to him. He needs to be strengthened by connecting with God in a manner which is humility. He's cheering for the child, believing that God may change the situation. But if not, David is saying in this act, I'm going to be changing because of the situation. I hope God will change it for his sake, for what I've done. But I definitely am going to change from this point forward. I am going to change. And so the elders of the house arose, went to him and to raise him up from the ground, but the but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. Then, verse 18, on the seventh day, it came to pass that the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, indeed, while the child was alive, we spoke to him, and he would not heed our voice. How can we tell him that the child is dead? He may do some harm. 
They knew the tender heart of David, and what they are saying here is that David, as a result of his grief and mourning, what he's showing to us, may do a couple of things. In a fit of rage, harm others, or in a fit of depression, harm himself. We have both of those things happening in this culture to this day. But that isn't what's going on in David's mind. That isn't what's happening at all. He's just waiting it out, waiting to hear with finality what the Lord's will ultimately will be. And so when he cues in on it, by the way, this is a day before circumcision would be required, eighth day circumcision, the child goes to be with the Lord. Oh, I'm in advance of that disclosure, but that's the fact of the matter. And the reason for that is that at that point in time, a statement would be made about the reality of a young boy being dedicated to the Lord. But the Lord had already dedicated this child to himself without the parent's consent. It was already the Lord's. David didn't need to do a thing about it. It's essentially saying, I've got this covered, David. I'm taking him out because it's going to be real hard for you and it would be devastating to him. I'm taking him out. He's mine. You don't have to touch it anymore. In fact, I'm going to remove even remembrance of this because you won't even be able to name him. I'm changing things, David, for good, for the long distance yet to play out in your life. I just think that's a wonderful impression there. And David says, though, after it's confirmed and the servants of David are afraid to tell him, he may do some harm. Verse 19, when David saw that his servants were whispering, David perceived that the child was dead. Therefore, David said to his servants, is the child dead? And they said, he is dead. So David arose from the ground, washed, and anointed himself, and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he went to his own house, and when he requested, they set food before him, and he ate. Verse 21, then his servant said to him, What is this that you have done? You fasted? And wept for the child while he was alive. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. And he said, verse 22, while the child was alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who can tell whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Notice this. Can I bring him back again? I shall go to be. Let me pick that up again. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. There are no returns. There's advancement. There's moving forward. He is literally saying to us in this statement to his servants, 
who are wondering how a disposition can be changed so quickly after being one who in lamentations is pouring out his heart, depriving his body of food, removing himself from any social or even vocational duties to appeal to the Lord for a change. And the Lord says, it did happen, David. You changed, I acknowledge it, and I'm changing things for this child that he might not have to endure what it is his life would receive based on what has been done to the hearing or soon understanding of the enemies of me. I'm removing that. There's no publications. It's going to be silenced. It also shows that David was deeply touched about transgression. He could have, as a king, written it off. He could have even not been motivated whatsoever about one child among right now many children. But it shows you that he did have a heart and he did care. And most importantly, it shows you that he had an eternal belief that a good and gracious God who forgave him of a sin multiplied in at least three expressions was not going to terminate him from completing the course set before him. In the Gospel of John, which is where we've been, Jesus sees a man for 38 years in an affliction, infirmed on a mat, coming to a place called Bethesda, the place of double outpouring of blessing. And I use that in conjunction with where many of us have been, perhaps are, may be, I'm on this mat paralyzed by an event, a loss, my failure. But what we see is Jesus comes specifically to an individual in which seemingly there was no help to remedy his plight in paralysis on a mat. And the words that Jesus used to him after hearing what he would have to say was simply this. Rise. Take up your mat, your bed, and do what? Walk. For us and others that you may know, that's the word of the Lord. As the Lord certainly knowing the condition of this man and what brought him to it, and it's implied later in several verses. See that you don't sin again. He says to the man who finds himself what? Not on the street corner? Not mixing it up with the people that are suntanning at the pool? Not that that was going on. He aims right towards the temple where Jesus meets him. That is the key, is that we meet Jesus, by the word that he has given to us, and we resume being found in the place that was special to him and his priority, right in that place. Well, but then I'm going to hear a reminder. What? It, what? The sin is not even mentioned by the Lord to this man in the condition for 38 years. I'm afraid everybody's going to find out. What are they going to find out that God hasn't already covered and that he's already forgotten? What you think is front page news is a remembrance in the file 13, we called it the trash can. 
That isn't what God does. People may. They have a problem. God will deal with them on that problem of not forgiving and not forgetting. But our problem is not believing that in the consequence of correction, it is for the purpose of a fresh direction. And that's the word of the Lord. We get a fresh direction. Marriage is a fresh direction. Parenting, a fresh direction. But we're all going the same way, one way, God's way. It's not a different path. It's simply taking where we're at and we get a fresh start. And I think that's worthy of applauding the Lord. I think it's worthy of celebrating grace. We are unworthy, but he is worthy and worthy to be even exceptionally appreciated in the life of David, who truly found himself put on his face because he had faced the wrong direction, made the wrong choice. But he came to terms with it, and God made terms with him, and he would have a child with that woman, who then is cited after the child dies as Bathsheba, no longer the wife of Uriah the Hittite, but Bathsheba, the wife of David, because the other had been taken care of. And God gave them a fresh start, and they gave, he, they were given a new son. As you know, that's Solomon. David's name means beloved, and Solomon's name would be loved by God. How can you argue with that in a time in which the Lord allows the chastening to unfold and the confirmation that you are a son and daughter of me, not in spite of it, but because of it? <laughs>